Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish, Inc. For over 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store right now using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for all items included again that is 10% off all deathwish releases and merch at deathwishinc.com slash the first ever if you haven't picked up the modern life is war tribulation work song seven inches volume one through three they're available right now and the third one features this cover of i want to be your dog Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 98, and I'm so excited to say that my guest this week is Stephen Brodsky. I'm a huge Stephen Brodsky fan. He, of course, is in the band Cave In. Uh, he's also in the band Mutoid Man. He played on the recent Converge Chelsea Wolf Blood Moon record. Uh, he's been a part of a lot. He used to be a member of Converge playing bass. Uh, we get into all of this stuff. It's uh, This was a really cool conversation. It's a longer episode. It's about two hours long. And um, I was just so thrilled to have it. I, uh, I recently just ran into Stephen at uh, Hellfest in France. And uh, it was cool to... Uh, to to do a quick little catch up after having this conversation. I'd actually only met him once in passing in, uh, in Brooklyn. So, um, altogether, very exciting interview. And I was so, so thrilled to have it. I want to mention to, uh, any potential new listeners or people that have been here for a long time, just that quick reminder that, uh, there's a bonus episode, which is available right now where Steven answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can hear that over on the Patreon. You can go over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And uh, if you subscribe, you get access to a Discord channel. You can submit questions to upcoming guests. All sorts of stuff is happening over there. And um, above all, it just really helps support the show. And I appreciate all of that. Um, also, we got some uh, shirts and hats. If you're interested in that, hit up secretvoice.bigcartel.com. Or you could just follow the link, uh, which you can find in the bio on the Instagram or on Twitter. 
all of that sort of stuff. Um, and also, just really quick, if you haven't subscribed to the show on Spotify, on Apple, wherever you're listening to this, that helps a lot. Uh, leaving a positive rating and review, as every podcast asks you to do. All of these things matter. I know it's it's annoying to hear this stuff all the time, but um, there's a reason all of us podcasters ask you to do it. I want to mention that Caven uh, actually has an upcoming tour that starts July 21st in Providence, and uh, it goes until August 6th. They're supporting their brand new incredible record, Heavy Pendulum. Check out those dates uh, on the Caven Instagram, which is cave underscore in underscore Boston. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with the incredibly talented, the incredibly sweet, Stephen Brodsky. How's it going, Stephen? Nice to see you. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Good to see you, too. Um, it's, it's funny. I have, uh, we have so many mutual friends, but um, when I was preparing for this, I was like, is Steve, Stephen, what do you, what do you prefer? Like, what, uh, what's, what's your normal uh, first name to most people? Or Brodsky? Brodsky works. I mean, if you're feeling biblical, you can call me Steven, Steve. <laughs> Some people call me Stove. It's it's all there. There are so many options. Okay, fair, fair. No yeah, shortage of things to call me. It's always uh, it's intimidating sometimes when um, you know things like a Wikipedia might call someone by their by the Steven, but you're like, I don't want to overstep and just you know assume that we're 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 best friends here, and I can just call you call you Brodsky or something like that, you know. All good. Whatever you're feeling. Fair enough. Um, well, firstly, congratulations with the new record. Um, it was really exciting when that thing got announced. Um, we played Orlando the same night as Converge, so I got to see Nate, and and he kind of gave me a, a big scoop about you know the process. He showed me the music video on his phone before it was released, and that looked like a, a really fun time. And uh, yeah, I mean, just the record is incredible. How are you feeling about it now that it's out into the world? Oh, thanks. Um, I'm feeling great. I mean, I'm just really enjoying the whole rollout process and, you know, the fact that we hadn't made music videos in like over 15 years and then we crammed four into the span of like less than two months. Oh my God. It was a feat in itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I'm just kicking back and kind of enjoying people getting to experience and take in all the work that we've put into the record for the past two years now and just letting it have a life of its own. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, the uh, It's funny, album rollouts can feel so kind of almost um, exhausting these days just because there's like, the record's probably been done for a long time and you're waiting for the vinyl, like all of those sorts of things. Um, how long has the record actually been done? When did you actually finish recording it? I think we finished the mixes at the end of summer 2021 going into the fall of 2021. Yeah. Um, it only has been exhausting in the sense that we really tried to not cut any corners and we tried to make every decision count and really put 100% of ourselves into all aspects of the record. Um, but as exhausting as that was, it was really rewarding. And I felt like, I think we all felt like there was just no other way to do it at this point. For sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, it was also nice to know that 
once you pre-ordered the record that it was actually going to be arriving within the same, you know, within like a, a short span, as opposed to for so I feel like so many of us are used to pre-ordering a record and then seeing like, you know, vinyl ship date, uh, July, 2023. So, uh, knowing that yeah. it was actually, gonna, knowing that it was actually going to arrive and then getting to listen to it, uh, on the turntable is very exciting. It's, uh, it's, it's a fantastic record. Seriously. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, no sweat. So, uh, you know, the show is all about first experiences and things like that. So you're from Massachusetts originally, uh, Boston area. Yeah, I grew up in a town called Methuen, which is closer to New Hampshire, actually. But okay. uh, as soon as I could move out of Methuen, I did and <laughs> lived in Boston for 14 years. And that's no offense to Methuen. I met some wonderful people, actually, Jr. and Adam, um, some of my oldest friends and this is where we this is where we grew up you know drinking the methuen water and you know our brains sort of <laughs> developing in in the way that they did because of that and yeah. uh then i lived in new york for 10 no 11 years actually and now i'm back in massachusetts okay fair enough um when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe something that wasn't being played in the house, but like something that you kind of discovered on your own and, you know, kind of created the first step of of like musical identity. Probably Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that was a big one. I don't even remember how I discovered it, but I do have some nice memories of spending time with that record and hiding it from my parents so they wouldn't confiscate it. <laughs> that was important. Uh, just finding cool and uh, useful hiding spots around the house. That's incredible. Um, I it's I've uh, I've told this story maybe once or twice on the podcast, but like I have a similar thing where um, use your illusion two. I think it was. Um, I was afraid of my mom discovering that I was listening to that myself. So I remember laying on my bedroom floor with my boombox in front of me and my headphones in. And I had, I put out a different cassette in front of, you know, like next to the boombox. So if my mom walked in, she'd think I was listening to that. Meanwhile, I had the tape cassette shoved underneath the bed. So I couldn't, it couldn't be discovered. Oh, nice. That's a pro covert move right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I remember the insight, uh, the insight for appetite for destruction had that drawing that had, you know, boobs and all that sort of stuff. So I imagine if, if you were a young kid, that'd be a, a, a scared that your parents were going to find that and think you're listening to something pretty heinous. Yeah. Originally they were intending for that to be the album cover. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but I got really good at drawing the record cover. I mean, whatever, wherever there was like a, piece of paper and a pencil i would just be practicing my skulls and top hats yeah. <laughs> um were you did, are you an artist in that way like can you are you like someone that uh, had a, a a point in your life when you were drawing and painting and stuff i was heavily into drawing and visual arts growing up and the more i got into music the more that i strayed from that just to busy my fingers with playing guitar and eventually learning, you know, pro tools and all things music. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I would spend as much time in the art room as I could in high school. And, um, I feel like, uh, that part of my brain sometimes kicks in whenever I'm writing music too. 
is it do you ever uh do you ever do it just like for fun as an escape sometimes like if like on the road sitting in a van bored like did you ever do you ever have the uh the the, it, the like urge to just start drawing yeah i would uh keep journals uh especially in like the early days of touring all the time and you know like my early 20s mid 20s and i was constantly writing and drawing in these little books that i would keep and sometimes you know we'd have these tour books that were printed out with like an itinerary and on the back of each page for whatever show it was i'd try to jot down some things that i'd want to remember for later on and i, I still have that stuff kicking around somewhere and some of it's oh, not awesome. terribly embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i almost got to feel like uh you know you having like that that artistic side feels like it could have been a, a at some point maybe a side hustle between records to uh to be like well maybe i could do an art show maybe i can do you know because so many of your friends and contemporaries have that sort of side hustle as well between like you know jake and aaron and and people like that thomas hooper so like uh i was yeah i was curious if that was ever something that popped in your head where you're like oh maybe i could do something like this as well yeah i mean i got really good at drawing ralph snart I don't know if you ever read that comic. It's it was like really under the radar stuff, but uh, uh -huh. Ralph Snart has this like really exaggerated nose, and you know, being that I'm half Italian, half Jewish, I just uh, I feel like my nose is probably the biggest part of my body. That's <laughs> 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 my it's part of my body dysmorphia, I guess. But um, so I really took to Ralph Snart, and uh, sure. you know, between that and. Um, the GNR appetite cover, I kind of came up with my own style. I, I don't know if anyone would buy it though, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, but you never like had the urge to like maybe do one of the early cave in covers or something like that, like for like any of the seven inches or anything. Oh, well, I would draw uh, stuff for the cover art for some solo releases that I did in okay. between the years like 2004 and 2000 nine i believe yeah um and my mom actually is a, a really really good visual artist in her own right and i had her do some stuff on one of my records that's we did awesome. a little collab together which is cool oh that's awesome that's super yeah. cool uh were your folks uh musicians at all my dad played guitar growing up he was in a band with uh a friend of his they're still friends to this day uh his friend lou and they were in a band together called the discords wow the discords, um, yeah, I, you know, they were, it was like 12 bar blues kind of stuff where they'd cover the Stones and Zeppelin. And um, so there was always a guitar laying around the house. Yeah. And the strings would just be slackened and I'd try to tune them to some formation of, I don't know, something musical. But uh, it really, it really didn't come together for me until I took lessons. But the fact that there are always guitars kicking around. I mean, my my dad kind of, I, I think his interest in playing guitar sort of came back a little bit when I started to become interested in it. But um, yeah, it wasn't until I took lessons that I really started to find my way with it. Yeah, you know, one of the first questions always is is uh, first guitar um, or first instrument. So I assume it was guitar. Um, Actually, it was saxophone. No way. Yeah. How old were you for that? grade school uh i think i played up until fourth grade and i was big into pro wrestling so i uh aside from my homework in whatever music class i was taking 
I put some time and effort into learning the WWF theme song. This is before it was WWE. <laughs> and, uh, and then I quit. I was like, I'm just going to quit while I'm on top. <laughs> I was about to say, you hit, the, you hit the ceiling and you're like, well, it's not going to get any better from here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think if someone walked in that room right now and handed you a saxophone, you have you'd have any ability to uh to to play it in any in any way? I'd have the lungs for it, but um I don't miss getting splinters in my lips. Oh man, yeah. Yeah. That that uh that part I remember even just like I never played a wind instrument or, or anything like that, but I, I anytime I'd ever put one of those up to my mouth, I, my first thought would be like this feels like it would kind of hurt after a while. <laughs> yeah oh yeah um i know and then you you think about people who do that you know for hours on end, on end and it's like one of my favorite bands from boston actually the band morphine hmm. dana collie who's you know there's video and photos of that guy playing two saxophones he's got one in each hand and i'm just like oh my god <laughs> then he throws a wah pedal in the mix and boom <laughs> that shit is dope <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, we just, uh, backtrack just a little bit. What was the first concert you went to? My very first concert was at Foxborough stadium in Western Massachusetts. This would have been 1991, 92, maybe. Um, it was U2 with Primus as the opener. Which explains a lot about me. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Someone I just had on the show also went to that tour. Oh, Fuck. cool. Yeah. Because that became a talking point where I was just like, how did that make any sense whatsoever? I don't think it was Brian McTurney. Could it have? Uh, Might have been Brian McTurney because I just had him on the other day. I was telling you, I think, an email. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's going to drive me crazy. I can't recall who it was. But that's fascinating that that's, that tour has now made a second appearance on this show. Um <laughs> That's wild that those two were together. Like, do you remember anything? Like, were you familiar with who Primus was when you saw that? Yes. My cousin, Jarrett, uh, we're, we're a lot like brothers. We're about four months apart. Okay. So a lot of, uh, you know, fun experiences with music growing up together. And he had a copy of Sailing the Seas of Cheese. I thought he was super cool for that. And I remember him kind of prepping me. He's like, we're going to see this band. You got to get into this. I loved it. I mean, Primus hit the suburbs of Massachusetts real hard. And uh, I remember walking into like a barely, you know, half filled stadium and the sound coming off the stage was just so mutated. And, you know, seeing some lanky dude leaned over his guitar with his hair draped over his face. Yeah. Uh, It's just such a vague picture in my mind, but um, it was stunning at the time. Um, wow. I also remember almost we, we got run off the road driving to the concert. Um, I just have a memory of being pulled over. It was my cousin's mom who was driving. I don't remember what the circumstances were, but um, she was real upset and we had to console her <laughs> before we got to the show. Oh, my so God. It, it was kind of a wild night, you know? Sounds like it. Yeah. Um this is a really uh, bizarre thing to to put together and, and I'm curious how you feel about it, but it almost feels like a lot of the music that you've gone on to make in your life feels like sort of a Venn diagram between you two and Primus. <laughs> with like, 
with like the wacky style that has come from a band like Mutoid Man and like the energy and the and the playfulness of of stuff that you've uh you've made, and then also the very seriousness and, and beauty of things that have come from you too. You know, there it is. There's the birthplace. That's the DNA right there. It really does kind of feel that way. And mm-hmm. I, so I'm glad you don't take offense to that in any sort of way. No, no, not at all. Absolutely not. Um. Yeah, like I said, it does explain a lot about me. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, when uh, when did you... Was, okay, so with uh, when you started picking up guitar and playing guitar, um, was that shortly thereafter the saxophone? You put the saxophone down or... Do you there was a lag period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a lag time of about... It must have been two or three years because I stopped playing saxophone in fourth grade, and then I didn't pick up guitar until sometime in seventh grade. And, okay. uh, but this time around was different because when I started to get into playing guitar, I really needed it. Uh, I had a really rough time in middle school. Like I was, I just had the lowest self-esteem, the, the, the lowest everything. It was like the lowest of the low. I just, I really needed it. It was kind of like life or death. And, um, mm. and so I chose life and life happened to be the guitar. Um, and when you, cause you mentioned you started taking lessons and stuff. Was that something that you, um, were able to connect with pretty easily or was it like tough for you to, um, be excited about lessons because maybe you were looking at Guns N' Roses being like, how do I just get there? <laughs> Good point. Well, I did have a, I did reach a point with my instructor who was an incredible guitar player. His name is John Zaykowski and just a wonderfully gifted blues guitar player. Um, I knew that I was going to get something out of taking lessons with John. And I, I knew that as long as I could get myself up to the point where I was able to function on my own, then I could write music. And that was always the goal for me was to write, to be my own composer, um, you know, to figure out how to sing over playing guitar and get my mouth and my fingers working at the same time. And the point that I reached with John after about nine or 10 months of lessons was uh, I, I came into a lesson one day and he seemed a little flustered because he was talking about a bass student of his. And he's like, yeah, this kid brought in this piece of music that he wants me to help him learn some band called Metallica. And it's this bass solo and it's like, it's just loud and obnoxious and there's all these mistakes. And so I'm going... <laughs> Oh, yeah. all right. I think uh, I think this is where our paths are going to diverge. You know, it's yeah. like, come on, John. Like bass yeah. solo. It's his first take. Bass solo, take one, dude. Yeah, like you need to. Re- it's yeah. It's almost probably offensive because you're like, you don't realize how sick that is that that this guy just knocked this out. Wow. Um, <laughs> wow. Did uh, it's interesting that you that you were so early on ready to start composing your own music and that was like in the forefront of your head because I feel like when a lot of us are young and we start playing guitar the idea is to just be able to play all of our favorite band songs and sort of stand in front of the mirror holding a guitar you know kind of cosplaying being a rock star um so uh how how quickly did you start writing your own music like once you know you kind of had the chops for it as soon as i could jump from one chord to the next 
with some sort of semblance of rhythm and timing. Yeah. And what and, type of stuff was it? What What did it sound like? Uh, it was sort of like Nirvana, not even B-sides. It'd be like C-sides or D-sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Nirvana was huge for me. I mean, that was, you know, I, I, it was a gateway to everything, really. You know, right. sort of figuring out how to behave in the context of this whole idea of even starting a band. Yeah. Um, Cause they didn't take themselves very seriously. And, you know, at age 12 or 13, neither did I, I mean, I was serious about getting better at my instrument for sure. Um, but it was fun to sort of excel at that in the shadows and then use that as sort of a vehicle to express the things that kids sort of revel in which is like absurdity or you know humor or um not to say that you know as a kid your feelings are shallow by any means i mean uh but i i just loved that aspect of it and i and i think i was looking for a way to help me socialize because that two or three year period between playing saxophone and playing guitar um I just had a really rough time figuring out how to socially integrate with people. And I was trying too hard to be friends with a group of people that just in the long run, it didn't really work out for me. Yeah. But at the time of really throwing myself into playing guitar and completely shifting gears with my friend group and sort of letting myself um, become part of, a different group of kids who loved music and loved art and that's what we lived for. It all kind of coalesced at one time right around the beginning of like 1993, like summer of 92, 93. And um, it was a huge turning point for me. That's amazing. Yeah. I, f I feel like when, if you're a creative type, whether you're painting, drawing, playing music, when you find the other people that are going through the same things and, and expressing themselves in their own you know sort of formative ways uh those are the people that are very easy to then lean on and be like okay we're all kind of in this together and you might find the corner of the school to kind of hang out in and be like let's just talk music and talk art and you know we'll get through the day and uh you know you kind of realize you're all kind of in it together so that's that's awesome you ended up finding your your tribe like that a hundred percent yeah it was um it was a beautiful time and uh yeah so you know, it's funny you asked about the first song I ever learned. And, you know, my dad helped me figure out the chords to Guns N' Roses' Patience. And, you know, it it has some sort of like poetic justice to it in a, in a sense, because uh, as a kid, and even to this day, I still struggle with patience, like yeah. just being patient and allowing myself some time to really learn the ins and outs of something. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of fitting that that was the first song that I learned. <laughs> um, what was, uh, so then what was the first band you ever did? Well, it was a duo between myself and an old friend of mine, Sean Cavanaugh, who lived um, just a block away from where I grew up. And he lived and breathed music just as much as I did. And so I had an electric guitar and an acoustic I was using the electric that my dad used to play as a kid. 
And then for lessons, actually, my teacher, John, insisted that we start with an acoustic guitar. That was his way of really teaching me about the resonances of a guitar. And Mm. um, generally speaking, if you can play something on an acoustic, it's going to be a little bit easier once you get your fingers on an electric. So we had this duo called Paranoia. And it was just the two of us, and we made these little boombox recordings, and we did some cover songs, but we were doing originals. And um, then we changed the name to Parasite. And at that point, I started to become, well, we started to become friendly with JR. And he was the dude. Like, before I even heard or saw JR play drums, I knew that there were he was in like three or four different bands <laughs> in in the town that I grew up in. And so my thinking was like, well, he's obviously in demand. This guy's got to be good. Right. And so eventually me, JR, and Sean went from doing Parasite to a band called New Breed. And it was everything to me at that time. It was a power trio, um, you know, the only thing missing was that I wasn't left-handed and I didn't have blonde hair. <laughs> right, right. So were you, so was it that style of thing? Like you were doing like kind of grungy sort of stuff? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we were just emulating all the stuff that was huge and exciting at the time. And um, this, is know, kind we, of a, this is kind of a fun question, but uh, I know when you're younger, you're a few years older than me, but I know when you're younger, you don't really so much care about... Uh, maybe like the the politics of music that's happening right there but because i just find it interesting because you got into guitar or got into music and all that because of guns and roses but then you got you gravitated to nirvana and then there was that huge blowout between axel and kurt like do you remember having any sort of opinion or feelings about that it's interesting you know it's like i didn't understand why my mom loved to read the tabloids or why there was always a copy of national Enquirer around with all these people i didn't recognize or names i didn't really know but then then i got it <laughs> you know yeah. it's like oh when the dudes and the bands that i love start feuding then yeah. i'm all ears you know right because <laughs> yeah i mean like all of that you know uh all of the the metal stuff from from the 80s and the very early 90s all of a sudden you know I've, we all know got uh got taken over by the grunge movement but um yeah so you didn't have any sort of alliance with anybody you were just like hey i'm just i just want to play guitar i don't remember so much of an alliance but i could go deeper with nirvana because they really wore their influences on their sleeves um yeah much more so than guns and roses um they were encouraging their listeners to search out all the bands that they loved and they were also very outspoken about who they didn't want at their shows. You know, they were like, if you're homophobic, if you're racist, if, if you're sexist, we don't want you. And right. so that was intriguing to me because um, they were really taking a stance and trying to protect who they were. And it was something I could relate to at the time because, um, you know, in that transition in 1993 from one friend group to the next, it just made me a lot more sensitive about people and yeah. the makeup of people and what people sort of need as far as like support just to get through this world. And I think Nirvana was 
adding a voice to that through their music that I could really relate to more so than Guns N' Roses. Although, you know, the music never really tarnished for me. I still loved the sound of it, but I, now I had all this other, I had all these other like, uh, sort of missions to go on like who are the vaselines who are the wipers what is sub pop and i could just go on these adventures and you know i found them to be very rewarding this podcast is presented by distro kid an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from itunes to spotify and apple music then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely remember feeling that same exact way. And I remember at the time, not thinking it was bizarre, but it's like, wow, it's like Nirvana really did a lot of covers and put a lot of covers on their <laughs> records and stuff like that, which is like, you know, respect, but I'm with you. It, it opened up. Um, it's like he was giving homework to people who really wanted to pay attention, which I, which I've always just really appreciated. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and so then, well, well, actually I'm curious, like if you guys were doing that band, uh, were you doing a lot of covers as well? And I'm curious, like what songs you guys were covering? We were, um, of course, Nirvana covers. We yeah. were doing covers of their covers. Um, yeah, of course. Getting, getting real meta there. What's um, your, uh, actually what's your, what, if you had to choose, what's your Nirvana record? Is it, is it in utero? Is it, is it uh bleach? Is it nevermind? It's really hard for me to pick. They're all super special to me. Um, yeah. I think uh, I think Incesticide is really interesting because it shows literally every aspect of that band, like all the cast is involved. Every every uh, you know every character, every player, every label, um, every era, really. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's arguably one of the best compilation records that doesn't really feel like a compilation when you listen to it it feels very complete and they they released it under the radar too they just kind of put it out and so um if you were a fan you were looking for it and you knew and uh i thought that was pretty cool i remember as a kid being yeah like i I don't know that i ever placed when it came out i think i had convinced myself that it came out before nevermind because nevermind was the biggest record in the world but um, and I don't think I realized it was even a compilation record until like I was much older. I just was like, wow, there's a lot of weird ass songs on this, but I remember liking it. You know, you get songs like Mexican hairspray and, and stuff like that. Like, uh, or, or, uh, the seafood song. I forget what, what that song was called. Oh, but Mexican, Mexican seafood. seafood. And then there's a song called something hairspray hairspray queen queen. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's real too. weird shit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just remember being fascinated by it, but not really understanding where it came from, you know? Yeah, and that was part of the beauty of it. It really kind of opened up your eyes to this whole other world that was happening that had been bubbling for so long. And then when it hit the mainstream, of course, it became something else. And uh, so I... I I felt the gravitational pull of that, you know? I mean, I would 
just want to leap through my TV, you know, watching MTV. <laughs> yeah. And just go get me out of here. Like get yeah. me get me to that Pearl Jam show where like, you know, I want to be crowd surfing. I want to be wearing flannel. I want to be wearing Doc Martens. I just want to be doing all that. Like I was ready for it, you know? And how did you end up uh finding punk and hardcore? Like how did that enter your life? Well, getting into high school in 1994 uh it was through it's through a, a number of things actually um i guess it started with like local stuff like uh sam black church yep and i remember just hearing sam black church and it was dark it was mysterious it was heavy it sounded exciting and i could picture it happening in a club and I was, again, I was super young. Getting to Boston to go to shows was like out of the question. But the other thing was like learning that these shows are really violent. And it sort of added to the allure, but also the um, the hesitation. Of course. So, um, and then so from Sam Black Church, it went to Biohazard. I somehow got into Biohazard. I mean, maybe it was the Judgment Day soundtrack, you know. Um, <laughs> but I loved Urban Discipline. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there were, there were kids that were like two or three years older than me in high school that, um, they dressed like skaters, but they were into hardcore. And that was what I knew. Like it was just this sort of narrative or this thing that you, you associate when you see these kids in your high school that are a little bit older and, you know, their clothes are a little baggier and, um, you know, sometimes they would dye their hair and, you know, and so this is all very intriguing to me. Um, but, uh, I remember going to a hardcore show was at this place called the red barn in North Andover, Massachusetts. And, you know, I had been going to shows at this other place called the Hibernian pub in Lawrence that sort of mirrored what was happening in like alternative rock and grunge, but it was like our own little sort of towny East coast version of that. Um, uh, but, uh, going to the red barn was different because there was more of this like kind of skater type vibe. And I was there with my friend, Jay, Jay Frechette, who's the uh, original singer of Caven. And, you know, we founded the band together and I remember what I was wearing that day. I remember what Jay was wearing too. We were just excited to go to a show at the red barn, you know, because, um, at the, you know, they were also sort of few and far between. And um, so there was a show happening. We knew about it. We got ourselves there. Super excited. Jay had like long, legit metal hair and was probably wearing a deicide shirt or something and had, um, you know, shit kicker work boots. And I had a tool hat on and like a like a Sonic Youth T-shirt and some ripped jeans, and we just thought we were the coolest walking in there, but, like, everyone was not looking like that. Like, we were the odd <laughs> ones out, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember it was someone that we went to high school with who singled us out while we were watching one of the bands play, and he ran at Jay and did a somersault and kicked him right in the face. And then we were stunned. Jay picks himself up same kid does the same thing again kicks jay in the face 
And I'm like, oh my God. So I, I drag Jay out of the red barn and we're outside and, you know, he's upset. I'm upset. And we're like, fuck this. And, you know, uh, it started actually a love-hate relationship with hardcore. Yeah, for, understandably. For me, for like, um, I would say, you know, a good two to three years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was like, this is all the bullshit that I didn't want anything to do with when I left that friend group in the, you know, summer of 92, fall of 93 to hang out with like a whole new crowd and now I feel like I'm fucking back at square one. This is bullshit. Fuck this. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. yeah. I, the, <clears throat> it's a shame when, you know, I think a lot of us have experienced that one way or another where it's like you, you've, you discover a scene that uh, boasts, you know, unity and things like that. And then you're like, wait, but everyone's being bullied here. I don't understand this. <laughs> the message is not, the message is being lost somewhere in here. And like, you know, the early gatekeepers and things like that. So that's a shame that that happened. So then, um, when Kaven ended up starving, stop starving with starting with, uh, with Jay, what was the motivation there? Because it was obviously, you know, in that hardcore world, Oh, for sure. Um, well, before Caven started, we had a band called System 3, which is named after a, a gasoline, funny enough, because <laughs> a mutual friend of ours uh, we used to play music with. He worked at the Texaco up the street from where we lived. Uh -huh. And so, you know, he and Jay were plotting this thing of like, let's start a hardcore band, System 3. That sounds like a cool hardcore band. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, I think it was our way of wanting to somehow integrate into that world because, you know, sometimes rejection does that to you. It makes you want to prove yourself. And um, as much sense. as I loved a lot of what was going on in that, like, that scene I was describing earlier that, you know, that sort of mirrored alternative and grunge, um, I didn't really see a longevity to it. And I was seeing and vibing on the fact that hardcore was, is exciting. And, you know, there were, there were people, there were, there, there was a lot of people sort of looking to find themselves in that world. And I knew that I could, I knew that I could find things about it to relate to, like the fact that, um, you know, I, I didn't like going to shows and coming home smelling like smoke, you know? Right. Uh, I liked that nobody was smoking at hardcore shows, you know? Not really. Um, yeah. So I related to the, you know, the the whole idea behind Straight Edge, and I called myself Straight Edge for a while. I even called myself Straight Edge before I fully immersed myself in hardcore because I was like, well, all right, that's one way I can try to connect to this thing. Yeah. And uh, that that really was a big reason why Caven started. It was for us to sort of figure out how to become one with this thing and to, you know, be accepted by it, but also to accept it and, and sort of on our own terms too. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, it's when you're, when you're seeing, uh, like a youth subculture that is exciting and dangerous and all that sort of stuff. Like I, I understand wanting to find some sort of belonging into it. Um, so then what, what was the transition from the system band to to cave in then? Uh, the, well, the the biggest transition from system three to cave in would have been the addition of Adam, Adam okay. McGrath, because Adam was like, he was years ahead of myself and Jay in terms of, 
really accepting and immersing himself in the world of like hardcore as we know it. And um, Adam comes into the picture because uh, we, we have a funny sort of history together. Um, you know, we didn't really like each other that much at first, which is it's funny <laughs> to think back on now. And, uh, you know, he would be like, ah, oh, Steve, that fucking druggy loser. And, you know, I was like, Adam, that fucking hardcore stuck up prick. Right. And the funny thing was, is that like, you know, I liked some hardcore music and, um, you know, I also wasn't into drugs and Adam turns out he loved a lot of the same stuff that I was into. And, um, it just took a study hall period in high school where, um, we both, <laughs> we both showed up at the beginning of this thing, you know, it's like a new semester. And so we enter the study hall and, you know, we see each other and then we look around and we see everyone else. And we had this moment where we were like, well, neither of us really want to go hang out with anyone else here. So why don't we just hang out and see how it goes? <laughs> and that started our friendship, you know, and, yeah. and, and it was really Adam who, uh, I think he was sensitive to my experiences with hardcore and figured out ways to navigate around that. I don't even think Adam was into really like macho sort of steakhead kind of hardcore music either. Like he was turning me on to stuff like frail and chokehold. And, um, you know, I, I got him into sunny day real estate, which he loved. And I didn't even realize there was a hardcore connection there. I was just like, look, I think this band's great. Cause they're on sub pop. And I was just exploring right. everything and anything sub pop. So, um, you know, we were, we were, without even really knowing it, we were putting together this template of bands and influences that would come together when we decided to try playing in a band, you know, and try right. doing a band together and, and, and using that as a vehicle to connect to all this other stuff that we loved and to get even closer to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's kind of funny, similar to uh, how we were talking about earlier, like, you know, uh nirvana wearing their influences on their sleeve and and all of that i feel like uh, for me and a lot of my friends we all discovered coding later on because of your band name cool you know what i'm saying yeah um and finding that connection and then obviously you guys covered that song too which i thought was really cool but uh what was that a band that you all collectively liked or was that something like how do you even discover coding is it was it the sub pop thing it was the sub pop thing i mean yeah. honestly i was getting catalogs sent to me and i was combing through these catalogs it was a it was an exciting time for sub pop in like the mid 90s because they had all that bleach money and so they became the distributor for tons of great labels um right and so I, it was just reading descriptions of stuff and i don't know getting a vibe from artwork and song titles and album titles and connecting the dots and um just doing my homework really um yeah. so codeine was another sub pop discovery and you know not all of it was rewarding like uh you know no offense to red red meat but you know it's a sub pop band that I, you know it's like damn i wish i had my 15 dollars of paper route money back from that one <laughs> you know but um absolutely um where did uh so when you guys went to go record for the first time, I wanted to ask what your first recording experience was. Had you already recorded with those other bands before Cave-In? 
Yeah, so I got a cassette four-track machine in the uh, winter. It was for Christmas in my freshman year of high school. And I remember my dad wrapping his head around that thing, just trying to learn it, being the engineer that he is. And, you know, after a few hours, he puts the headphones on my head and he treats me to this beautiful version of Norwegian wood that he just recorded, um, simply figuring out the four track machine, which I still have to this day. It's, it's, you know, super cool. So then I was like, cool. I got this thing that is level up from boombox recording. I'm going to start my own studio. And I had like a, I had a name for my studio, you know, I was like, I'm going to call it mental floss. And, you know, to this day, we even laugh. Like whenever I set up to do a remote recording, it's always like, all right, setting up mental floss studios. Here we go. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I, I really sort of figured out how to record myself and use the four track machine to record my friends, uh, little demos for, you know, whatever was happening at the time. Yeah. The very first Caven demo was recorded on a cassette four track machine, the one that that I was gifted in yeah. you know, 94 or whatever. And yeah, that thing got a lot of miles. I mean, I recorded that thing into the ground basically. Um, was was Brian McTurnan the first person that you guys went to to, or like the first, your, your first experience to going to somebody else to have you, uh, to, to record your band? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Salad yeah. days. And he was in Brighton, Brighton, Massachusetts, I believe at the time. Was that yeah. when he was in the basement with like Trey, like that in that house? You know, I, I have a very vague recollection of what this place looked like um i can picture the area in boston like the general area of where he was at um i think i may have had to have my mom get on the phone with brian at one point to just make (laughs) sure that like everything was cool (laughs) you could probably tell you more about that that's Um, adorable (laughs) um what what do you uh well first how did you end up contacting him like what was that what was was he kind of known as like the new guy in town to record bands and you wanted to just you know try him out or what was do you remember anything about that that's a great question um you know i think back in those days we were just annoying like we would just annoy people into letting us do something i don't know i don't know any (laughs) other way to really recollect these things um it's it's really hard to say um but I do remember we weren't old enough to drive to the studio. We had to get rides from our friends to go into Boston to record. Um, the second time we recorded with Brian, I remember we we were very diligent about looking professional, and I think we got to the area where we were going to record a lot earlier than we were than we needed to be to start the session. So we were just we were kids and we were goofing around and our bass player at the time, Justin, I think he was scaling a fence and caught his hand on some oh, barbed no. wire and ripped his hand open. <laughs> and so we were like, well, we got to record. So he ended up just doing the session with his hand all fucked up. And, oh my you God, know, he should have been in the ER while we were doing that, but <laughs> you know, we were young and dumb. Um, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. There were there were three like crucial sessions with Brian. 
uh, before we made a record with him. The third one was for the Crossbear Chameleon single. Mm-hmm. And that was the first one that we did with Hydrahead. And we were like, wait a minute, we're not using show money to pay for this. We got Hydrahead bankrolling this shit. Wow, this is this is dope. This is cool. Yeah. And we get to do our own seven inch finally. <laughs> that was a yeah. big deal. Yeah, because you guys had done a series of splits at that point. And I was going to ask, how did the... Uh, you know gambit i don't know much about other than the fact that it's one of the members who went on to be in agoraphobic nosebleed i know know that but um the label that i was looking it up uh it's called like son of sam and that was the only release on son of sam what was the story there yeah the story with that was uh jay randall went to a fish concert and sold some fake drugs and then used that money to press the cave and gambit seven inch (laughs) <laughs> it's a better story than i ever could have imagined <laughs> yeah yeah some real bummed out hippies that night yeah for sure um and then yeah with the other with the other uh seven inches that ended up coming out were those just again like friends putting like uh creating labels or or because there's like moo cow records i think did like the piebald split or something yep that's right moo cow out of uh, madison wisconsin okay how did um, that how did that happen? Again, great question. Oh, you know, Mukau put out a cable record and we loved cable. And okay. so um we just thought, wow, if if this label that put out a cable record wants to work with Caven, that's super cool. Yeah. Um and they're from Wisconsin. So there was this idea of like, this is all pre-internet. So there's this idea of, well, if we're sending our music to somebody in Wisconsin that has a label then that's a way of like sort of globalizing ourselves essentially you know that's how yeah. you did it and and the same with the the label that put out our music in Florida it was a split sing, uh yeah split 7 inch with early grace i can't remember the name of the label that put it out um but same idea like you know sort of spreading our music out in a way and working with different people different bands in different areas using that format to potentially create opportunities you know or maybe wow maybe we could play a show in madison someday or maybe we'll get to florida this way (laughs) right yeah Yeah. that that label is called independence day i just looked up yeah like reversible man and stuff like that that makes sense from tampa Mm -hmm. um a a question i think i I accidentally skipped over was what was the first show that you ever played the first show that i ever played yeah oh uh that would have been at the hibernian pub which is that place that I kind of mentioned just in passing earlier. Yeah. Um, that was sort of like the centralized location of this little scene that, uh, once again, it sort of mirrored, you know, what was happening in like alternative and grunge, but, you know, it was like our own little New England towny version of that. <laughs> um, and I remember the promoter, his name was Todd Levine. And it was uh, this deal where, you know, we had to sell our own tickets and classic. depending on how many, yeah, classic, yeah, <laughs> little kids just hustling tickets. Um, and that, of course, like they kept a tally of, you know, how many tickets you sold and how many of those people came to the show. And then that determined how much you got paid. And um, it was a little weird, but, um, of course, yeah. you know, and then naturally it came to a head at some point. But, you know, I look back and, um, you know, I got to say, I, 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 I do feel some small part of me, um, you know, wants to give Todd Levine the recognition for uh, at least giving me an opportunity to 
play my first show in front of people. And that, that was with a band called Bliss. And so this was post New Breed. And this is me and JR and another power trio with our friend Corey Wagner. And um, Bliss just kind of took what New Breed was doing to the next level. And, um, you know, our hair was longer. My mom finally let me grow out my hair at that point. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got to wear cool sweaters on stage. And, um, you know, JR had his drum kit with that was like, completely covered in every sticker imaginable there's probably a primus suck sticker on there somewhere it's incredible <laughs> um what do you remember from the first show though were you nervous were you excited were you did did you feel like you were doing which you know like the all, all the stuff you had been dreaming of at that point where you're like oh my god i'm on stage i feel like you know uh, i'm one of the guys in the music video like what do you, what do you remember from that yeah that was an interesting moment um i had stolen a pair of my dad's pants so that i could kind of look more like the skaters at the hardcore shows the but pants, i was rocking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that was my my attempt at wearing baggy pants and uh and then but i had my i was wearing this like thrift shop sweater that um you know had sort of like a kurt cobain vibe to it so i was like kind of meshing my my worlds there you know i was yeah. like okay here's a little bit of the the old into the new uh-huh. And uh, you know, Bliss was a power trio, so that was exciting, you know, love power trios. And I Were remember you singing? Were you singing in the band? Yeah, I was singing in the band and um I remember the opening song. The opening song was something that we later dissected and used some parts of that for the song Requiem. Um it's a song on the Caven record Jupiter. Uh Wow. Yeah, I remember the opening of this song. It's it starts on guitar and it was I remember my leg was just shaking uncontrollably and I was like this is crazy. Is this going to last the whole set? Like what's going on? Like all the band practices we have ever done like it, it just never prepares you for a show, you know, especially your first show. And it wasn't until the drums kicked in where my legs just relaxed and I was like, "Oh, this is fucking cool." Um yeah, yeah, it was um it, it was it was a fun moment and I, I I have pictures from that show. I've got photos somewhere and it's probably the best my hair's ever looked. <laughs> <laughs> a true fashion icon, the long hair. It's it's uh, it's all it's all working. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um what about uh what about the first tour? Was that uh was that Caven? The first tour I ever went on was actually with Converge. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I should actually throw it back to study hall with Adam for basically showing me Converge and letting me discover that band. And, you know, that was the, the turning point for me where I realized, okay, I get it. I get why people love hardcore. Mm. It was hearing Converge. And it made sense to me because it had all the adventurousness of the music that I loved up until that point outside of hardcore because it had some melody and it had weirdness. It had unpredictability. Um, but you know, I loved metal and Converge was fucking metal too. And so right. it, it just connected all the dots and to know that something like that was happening just like a town away from where we were living was like super cool super cool and they weren't active at the time either they were in this period of activity where their original bass player jeff feinberg 
had moved. He'd moved away to go to college. So Converge wasn't an active band, but it just made the the mystery of their whole thing even more uh, enticing and alluring. And so, um, yeah. And then fast forward, you know, two, three years later, and I'm playing bass with Converge. Cause, yeah, uh, I was about to ask, how, do, how does it go from like, holy shit, like I, this this band is opening my mind to, to things in study hall to uh, now you get to be in the band. <laughs> yeah yeah it was a it was a pretty wild two years i mean i think once i let myself fully just get into hardcore and just you know i knew that i could make my own rules and i could just sort of be whatever i wanted to be in this thing um you know the the whole process of connecting to things and people and bands and music it, it really accelerated and that's a real testament to just how electric and exciting the music scene was around here in, um, you know, the mid to late nineties. And, um, so it was, it was really through my connection with the band Piebald that led me to converge because, uh, those two bands are from the same town in Andover and Caven and Piebald were, I mean, we were inseparable in those early days, you know, and Piebald was always one click ahead of us in terms of what they were doing. Like, you know, they did a tour before Caven did, or, you know, they had their own touring vehicle before Caven did. And, you know, they were setting these little benchmarks for us to sort of um, aspire towards. And, uh, yeah, so through my connection with those guys, um, you know, Converge became an active thing again at some point. And I think when Converge realized that, you know, after that brief period of activity that they truly did have something special and you know i think just playing some shows um when jeff was available it really keyed them into that and and sometimes mystery does that with a band like a band will go away and they come back and they're like twice three times as popular and i think they may have experienced that at the time sure and um caven actually played one of their sort of comeback shows it was our second show ever um yeah, in uh, at the uh, the Haverhill VFW, and yeah, that was an awesome show. One Hundred Eight played that show as well. I think Piebald was on the bill. That was actually the day that Jerry Garcia died. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, we we were having a pool party earlier that day at um the bass player Andy Bonner at the Piebald house, and and um you know there was this inflatable skeleton, and I remember uh you know Andy coming out of his house announcing that you know. Jerry Garcia died and we were all just throwing this inflatable skeleton around the pool, you know, like <laughs> calling it Jerry. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny. I always thought, and it, it became, you know, more so later that if you, I feel like, you know how like uh, uh, movie houses will do, um, you know, good double features. I kind of always felt like until your heart stops and, when forever comes crashing is like a perfect double feature record that came out in the same year. Um, You can like, I feel like there's a lot of Sonic comparisons in in a lot of them. And I was curious if you were a part of the songwriting with when forever comes crashing at all, or if you were just playing bass on it. Yeah. And that's an astute observation, just sonically and musically the connection between those two records. Um, Because when forever comes crashing essentially was Kurt's, first attempt um actually maybe not the first but it was it was maybe the first of note um 
his attempt at um, really dialing in the studio that he built in Alston, Massachusetts, in the basement of 30 Blaine. And, um, you know, he had discovered drum triggers and, um, you know, had done some work with Steve Austin from Today is the Day. And that had a huge influence on the original sound of that record. I know it's been remixed since then. Um, and yeah, I, I was very much a part of the songwriting. I mean, I, of course, I was just getting to know these guys as we were working on the record. And so my goal was just to play as best as I could. And, you know, that's what I strove to do every time we got together to rehearse at uh, original drummer Damon's house where he grew up in Andover. And uh, I think we were playing in his basement. And, you know, I was also wrapping my head around being a bass player. You know, I'd never yeah. really played bass in a band either. And so I was just trying to mimic essentially what was happening on guitar. Um, <laughs> but then sort of veering away from that when necessary or when instructed to do so or whenever, you know, the inspiration kind of struck me. Um, but the change in my whole idea of writing music was certainly happening, you know, exponentially at that time. And, you know, my fingers were getting stronger too. I mean, you know, after like two to three hours of playing bass with Converge, you know, you pick up a guitar and it feels like a toy. Right. So, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Sure. So, so it just opened up some technical possibilities for me to explore as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the same tricks from When Forever Comes Crashing were employed sonically during the recording of Until Your Heart Stops. But, you know, for whatever um, faults there were with the When Forever Comes Crashing engineering process, you know, it was almost like a guinea pig in a way for this Caven record that we made, um, you know, less than a year later. And that's to know, that's not to discredit When Forever Comes Crashing at all. I mean, I think it's a great record. I'm super proud of it. But, you know, there were things from that experience that we all learned that we were able to apply to Until Your Heart Stops. That sure. Just, you know, kind of just bumped it to the next level for Caven. Yeah. That, okay. So I was curious. Yeah, I was going to ask which one came first. So that that's awesome. Um, was there other because, you know, I, I feel like this isn't a blowing smoke sort of thing, but I think a lot of people look at Until Your Heart Stops as, um, you know, a blueprint record for so many bands that ended up, you know, coming out in the years to come. And even still to this day, you, there's still bands that I feel like are trying to capture what you guys did, you know, in the mid 90s. So, like, I was curious for you. Uh, what were you pulling from with writing that record? Well, that was a crazy time for the band because we hadn't made a full-length record and we knew we wanted to make one. And actually, when I joined Converge, that was the mission statement verbatim. It was like, we need to make a new Converge record. And so applying that to the trajectory of Caven, it made a lot of sense because, you know, as we were talking about, we had done all these recordings that were sort of fractured into little bits of inspiration and documents of the band that were then allocated to a single here or a split there. And um, so there was the determination to make a, 
a statement that was longer, you know, and, you know, had some length to it. Um, and the frustration, I guess, of getting to that point, you can hear it in the music. I mean, <laughs> you know, we had a, a second vocalist uh, after Jay had left the band. Um, we worked with Dave Scrod for a little while, whose voice you can hear on Beyond Hypothermia. And we had a great run with Dave, but, um, you know, we did some touring together and it just in the long run, it didn't seem like it was a lineup that was meant to last. And, you know, we acted upon that and we were well into the way of making new music at the time. And again, I think it was just the crazy changing nature of life as it was back then, where the band was a revolving door of vocalists and bass players and it was the end of our time in high school and we were transitioning to going to college and moving out of Methuen, Massachusetts and taking up residence in Boston. So a lot of change was happening. And um, I think sometimes in those, you know, moments of chaos in your life, um, it's, it's funny how you can funnel that into art and it gives you a bit of a fearlessness and I think we were starting to find our fearlessness in working on the material for that record. Um, ultimately, when Caleb joined the band, it really made a huge difference because we downsized to a four-piece. And that became a whole thing because, you know, for as amazing of a vocalist as Caleb was back then, you know, we got him in the band to play bass and he had never played bass and done lead vocals in a band. And uh-huh. so I was the only one with experience who had done that. And so it all kind of fell on me where we were just like, let's not roll the dice on a fifth member. Let's just keep it like this. Yeah. And those guys were encouraging me like, look, you got this. Just lower the mic stand, get in your best James Hetfield stance and bark <laughs> that shit out. You got this. And you know, yeah. I was like, okay. And so that was crazy because all that came together just like, a, a couple months before we went in to record the record and you know i had to come up with vocals and lyrics for all that shit just like in seemingly no time and who there was a, just there was a lot going on so yeah um you can hear it <laughs> sure i yeah. feel like that that amount of like stress and pressure and nervousness and all of that like you know it, as much as it it is miserable in the moment does kind of create a pressure cooker situation that you know, ends up giving us something really special. Um, was uh, you know, you described the fearlessness, <clears throat> which I think you can definitely hear going forward with the way the band evolved over time and stuff like that. Um, was it what, a thing I wanted to ask you? With I mean, I'm sure throughout your life you've had a billion questions about the change between until your heart stops to Jupiter. Um, but I guess I was curious was once you guys did make that sonic change, was it hard for you to find bands to relate to and tour with and play with um, to where you didn't feel singled out for not playing the until your heart stops material anymore? Yes and no. Um, Yes. In the sense that playing straight up hardcore shows, we became sort of the odd ones out or we were sort of a conversation piece. Like, 
are they going to play any of the old shit tonight? And then, you know, we'd get up and play and be like, all right, well, there's two new songs. Uh, you want to hear an old one? People would get stoked. Yeah, fucking play some old yeah. shit. All right, cool. Here's an old one. And then we'd start playing Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my friend had a uh, had a bootleg VHS of a show of yours that I remember show- he showed it to us which you guys were playing with the your backdrop was like you know like those those like uh the space stars that like kids used to put in their bedrooms and stuff like that um does this sound familiar uh like the glow in the dark oh we uh, may have used that as um decorative grill cloth on our guitar cabinets and bass cabinet okay yeah. so so maybe that's what it was but i remember you start playing the intro to Moral Eclipse or something like that. And then right before it starts, you just stopped and said, just kidding. And then went into like another, <laughs> went into a newer song. <laughs> like you saw the whole crowd start going crazy. And then as soon as you just didn't give it to them. <laughs> yeah, we were big on fucking with people back then. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, here's the thing. Like we weren't career minded, you know, all the shit about like building a brand and, you know, yeah. It's like this was not these weren't terms or this wasn't a conversation back then. And we were just so immersed in our own little world and, you know, being the punks within the the scene in a way like fucking with people like we yeah. got off on it. And um, of course, you know, in some ways it sort of shot us in the foot, like looking back, you know, it may have worked against us in some ways to be so militant about our stance. But that also made some people really excited and they, they liked seeing that they liked seeing their scene challenged. And in a way, you know, it's funny, like thinking about the arc of our conversation together. I mean, that could have been my way of saying, you know, fuck you to like this scene that first rejected me. And now, haha, now I got the upper hand. I can, <laughs> you, you're not getting your sense. mosh riffs tonight. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's like all of a sudden now you feel like you have a little power where you're like, no, I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to I'm going to play what I want to play. Um, did uh, it's it was really awesome talking actually to Brian McTernan about doing the Jupiter record. He said that uh, a, the record was recorded live, which blew my mind because it's and you, and just like how just locked in you all were with tempo and things like that, like. With that record, what were you guys pulling from? Like, you can hear, you know, liking, you know, you could hear like the probably influence from coding and maybe bands like Failure, Hum, things like that. Um, was there anything beyond that that maybe people wouldn't expect as an influence from that record? Well, we did the tracking for that record live, and that was deliberate because we knew that we were taking quite a risk in sort of going the creative direction that we did and we felt like well at least no one can argue with the fact that we can fucking slam this shit and play it and it's not a studio creation and it's a vibe that we're all sharing amongst each other in real time so that was part of the statement um we were we were looking to just reinvent our whole thing anyways and and this had a lot to do with Caleb joining the band and this new this newfound sense of freedom creatively um we were just all clicking in so many ways and and it was it was the shit that we were listening to and and 
you know, everything culturally, like movies we liked. And, you know, it was a, it was a really strong, intense bonding time for the band. And, um, so we just felt invincible. And one of the experiences that really solidified or strengthened the resolve to keep going in that direction and to kind of keep fostering our own little world, so to speak, was opening for neurosis. That was huge um, because, you know, we were in our late teens, early 20s at that point and yeah. uh, still kids very much in a lot of senses. And we get this opportunity to open up for these fucking hardcore veterans from the West Coast. Right. Who are scary as shit, you know, on the surface. I mean, having been to the Through Silver and Blood tour and seeing fucking barbed wire flash across, you know, these screens and the place is dark and it's flickering lights and you can't see shit. And, you know, all my experiences going to punk and hardcore shows, it was like, those bright ass lights and you know that were just blinding and you know showing every blemish in the place yeah fluorescent fluorescent rec hall lights yeah exactly oh god yeah Yeah. you know all our eyes are just fucked from all that (laughs) (laughs) um so it was a real game changer because their version of heavy music was evolving and it was evolving in so many ways um you know, tracing the evolution from their beginnings to Times of Grace, which was the record that they were touring on at the time. Uh, it, it was it was amazing. I mean, they had done the record with Steve Albini. That was their first recording with him. And, you know, obviously my connection to Steve Albini's work dates back to like being a young townie alt rocker. Like, oh shit, you know, yeah, he did in utero. He did the breeders. He did the pixies. He did Jesus lizard, you know, the list goes on. And so here's this heavy band sort of embracing that and mashing these two worlds together. So I could relate to that because Caven was doing its own version of that too, with our influences. And, um, they were just super fucking cool to us. They were super accepting and encouraging of us. And they put on amazing shows too. I mean, some of the shit that we saw on that tour was, it was mind blowing. I mean, they were at a creative peak, you know, and getting to hear like the doorway every night was, I mean, that just does something to you. That just, you know, I think our, our musical DNA was just forever imprinted by that experience. That's awesome. That makes sense. That's super cool. Um, and then, you know, you guys, you guys then got to be a part of the the early two thousands wave of of uh, of major labels trying to sign punk hardcore influenced bands. And I thought that Antenna was one of my one of the best, one of my most favorite records that came from that era. You know, because I felt like it was you could still hear everything that I loved about Jupiter, but now it's like sort of um, filtered through this, like very incredibly well-produced, like big rock songs. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I was curious what your experience recording that record was. Cause you went to uh, a gentleman named Rich Costley, who I'm assuming that was probably in like a pretty, pretty fancy, nice studio. Cause he had done a qu- quite a lot of big, big records at that time. Um, yeah. Well, his name yeah, is, well, his name is Rich Costi, but yes, the experience, Costi, sorry. The experience yeah. was very costly. <laughs> <laughs> I 
mean, we were at cello studio. Fre- yeah, fre- Freudian slip, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, Richard worked with the Swirlies, and um, that was a band on Tang Records that I really loved. And That's like one of his first records, I think, that he even did. I saw. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really early on, and uh, I love the Swirlies, so that spoke to me. And he, you know, Rich is he—he's from New England, or he, he spent a lot of time in New England. So we sort of vibed with him over that experience, just having grown up in the same area. Because a lot of the people that we were meeting to potentially work with, um, they just weren't from New England. And that's that's fine, you know. But um, we were just, we were so green in this world of like, you know, corporate rock that yeah, <laughs> I think any connection that we could make um, really spoke in volumes. And so... Uh, Rich was super down to earth and cool. And, um, you know, we had labored over that material incredibly rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And then by the time Rich got on board, you know, we had to really kind of put on our best faces and, and, and try to find the spirit in these songs that we were working on. And I think Rich actually did help us fall in love with that material again just through making little changes or you know his his enthusiasm for certain things and um you know we just never taken that long to write a record before sure and uh it, it was it was interesting but um how long was that recording process like how long were you guys in the studio we spent i mean upwards of two months at cello studio wow yeah I mean, let me tell you, man, there were some days where we'd just show up and I, I don't even remember recording a single note of music. I mean, it was like Grand Theft Auto 3 and, I don't know, ordering <laughs> vegan food and, I don't know, someone's fixing a tape machine or, or hey, you know this uh, setup that we have in this ISO booth with JR's drum kit? Because we thought that would sound punk and cool. Well, it actually sounds like shit, so let's break it down and put it in that giant live room where the drums should have gone in the first place. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you mean the room where, like, there's photos of Mick Jagger, you know, in front of a microphone (laughs) crooning his ass off? Oh, yeah, (laughs) we should probably be in there. That's that's probably where the magic is. (laughs) Goddamn. Were you guys, because you you mentioned um, wanting to work with him because of the swirlies. Um, Was the label trying to pitch you a bunch of different producers and you, and, it was like tough to decide or um, cause you mentioned you wanted to have the new, the new England connection. And also is that studio, was that studio actually located in new England? Uh, cello is located in LA. Oh, it is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so how was that experience for you having to live in LA for a couple months to make that record? Um, well, you know, we were, we were, we were living in, um, when Oakland, I think Oakland suites, or no, Citrus Suites. That's where we were first living when we were out there just writing. But then we stayed in Oakwood, okay, which is yep. a place where like celebrities yep. live when they get divorced. You know, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's actually the best way to describe it. Because normally people would say, "Yeah, that's like where you know actors come and they stay when they're on a project out here for a couple for a couple months." But no, it's even funnier to say it's where they. they end up <laughs> yeah, going I guess both are true. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, was that just like such a surreal experience though being like wow we're on this label we're making this big record we're you know we're living in LA in these 
fancy. Like that had to have been just overwhelming. It was about as different as you could make it for these like New England fucking hardcore weirdos, you know? Yeah. Getting thrown out into sunny LA for two months in the summer too. I mean, oof. Um, I mean, now when I go like for hikes at Runyon Canyon, you know, whenever I get the chance to do that, yeah, just the smell of the dirt, it automatically just brings me right back to wow. that time. Yeah, it's like the 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 smell of the heat and just the vibe of of the dirt and the look of it and the color of it. Like it's it's really really potent. Um, and it's yeah, just it it's um it almost feels like the same orange that's on the album cover <laughs> yeah yeah that's true that's a that's that's a good observation actually yeah yeah um yeah it was um it was an interesting time and uh you'd asked about other producers yeah we did meet up with ken andrews from failure about possibly working together the label frowned upon it because ken hadn't done any like hit music at that time Yes, and like, uh, him doing like Paramore and things like that. Yeah, it was a tough sell for them, but um, it was super cool that we got to meet Ken that way. And uh, our initial introduction to him was inviting Ken to one of our rehearsals, and we were at um, what was the name of the rehearsal space? Cole Cole Rehearsal Studio in L.A. And so, you know, we had recorded a failure cover and put that out on the uh, creative eclipses EP. And yeah, he may have known about that. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, in any case we were set up to play cause we figured, well, if Ken's coming to hang out with us, he might want to hear some new music. So, and then we, we get, we get this little idea in our heads and we, we actually set up a video camera and we had it recording. So when Ken enters the room, He's like, hey, how's it going, guys? And we have our amps on. We're ready to play. And we're like, hey, Ken, dude, you're late for band practice. And we just bust into Magnified. <laughs> and we start playing it. Adam breaks a string in like the first five seconds. Oh, no. And Ken is standing there with his fingers just plugged as far into his ear holes as he can manage. And we play through the whole song. We have a mic there for him in case he wants to start singing, which is fucking ridiculous to think about in hindsight. But it's also kind of funny. It's just part of the joke. And of course, he didn't start singing. He's like too busy just like saving his fucking ear holes from complete decimation. And then we stop oh and he's just like, oh, my God, you guys are fucking loud. <laughs> You're like, That's not the reaction I was hoping right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's incredible that's incredible so i mean that's a shit i mean i i i uh i'm now gonna always wonder what a ken andrews produced antenna would have sounded like that's, that's i wonder that sometimes cut. too yeah wow um and then you know i we don't we don't have to go record to record to record uh, you know i just had a few questions on um on a few of them but um when you guys went back to do when you guys ended up doing um perfect pitch black uh you I think it was around that time when it, when I think your your album credits maybe started saying like produced by Cave In, and then you just had people engineering the records and things like that. Um, was was that like you had gotten to a point where you feel like you guys understood what you wanted to do, and um, felt like you maybe didn't need any sort of input going forward? Was that sort of a motivator? 
Um, that's an interesting question. I guess I don't remember that from the liner notes, but I believe you. And, you know, that's cool that we did that. Um, <laughs> we're sort of reclaiming our band in a way or reclaiming yeah. everything, you know? Um, and there was that feeling, I think produced by the bad taste that was left in our mouths, having that experience of putting out a record, it gets, you know, basically you know, becomes dead in the water, essentially, almost upon release. And uh, at that did point, you, there was you, just... Actually, let me ask you, did you guys do... How much touring did you guys actually do off of Antenna? Because you guys did... Am I wrong? Did you guys do a Foo Fighters tour, maybe? Yeah, we, we did a lot of touring leading up to Antenna. Okay. And then there was writing in between the touring. And then there was the record. And then as soon as we finished the record, we went to Japan and did Summer Sonic. And then more touring and uh it was just non-stop and the problem with the touring post antenna was that we had this great momentum built up to the release of that record and it felt like the record came out and instead of letting people sort of sit with it for a little bit um we just went right back into it mm-hmm. right back onto the road and you know we're out in Europe somewhere, probably Germany, and you know, some someone there is like, um, "Excuse me, can you please explain why half the people are at your show tonight than there was when you were here three months ago? Maybe it's because you were here too soon." And it's like, uh, yes. <laughs> Do you want to be our manager?" <laughs> Sorry, that was a fucking terrible German accent. No, no offense but, to any Germans out there. They, yeah. they had it dialed in. They knew that this was fucked up. Yeah, and they'll be the first to tell you. Um, <laughs> yes. Incredible. Um, yeah, did... Uh, were you guys doing a lot of support tours, or was it like headlining off of antenna material? We did some headlining. Um, we did Lollapalooza, which we, we had a set right after Steve-O played, but... You know, so, you know, he's shoving things up his ass and then, you know, <laughs> no, actually, hold on. I'm sorry. We played right before Steve-O. So oh, we would you go led up on. to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you <laughs> we, warmed the crowd up for it. We warmed, we warmed up the crowd for the, um, the things entering Steve-O's butt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we did see this crowd building as our set went on because it was people wanting to get a good place for his set. So it was yeah, actually a good spot to have on the on the festival. Um, and yeah, we did stuff with the Foo Fighters. That was awesome, especially the UK, because we were the only opening band oh, on wow. that tour. Yeah. Um, and then How we was- also did stuff with them in the US with the Transplants. And um, great show. I, I, f- I forget where it was exactly. It may have been in Birmingham or somewhere in Alabama. But I remember the power completely blew, and the only thing working was the monitors. And this was during the Foo Fighters set. And so they just turned their wedges around on stage. And they were like, hey, look, we're just fucking flying by the seat of our pants here. We don't want the show to stop. So this is the best we got. And I just thought it was one of the most punk fucking things that I've ever seen done in an arena-sized venue. It's pretty cool. Wow. What was your experience like meeting Dave Grohl, considering everything we've talked about in the beginning of this episode? Well, we met Dave prior to doing those tours. And 
so the Foo Fighters and Caven were both signed to RCA by the same A&R person, so we had a connection there. And the Foo Fighters were working on the, is it the one by one record? I think it is. That it's sounds the, about right. Yeah, it's the one after uh, There's Nothing Left to Lose. And so Dave was in DC making that record, and we played the Black Cat, and he came out to the show and then hung out afterwards. And I remember our A&R guy saying, hey, Dave is going to hang out, and you know, you guys should just feel free to ask him whatever you want. I think he was sort of encouraging us to sort of seek some you know, life-slash-band advice from Dave. And so we, we hung out for a little bit and shot the shit, and you know, we got to ask him some questions about anything really. And he was super gracious and cool. And, uh, you know, um, it was nice hearing that like a lot of the musical choices in Nirvana were like super deliberate and, you know, that, um, a lot of it was like very sort of planned out and not necessarily spontaneous. Um, I just liked that sort of genius aspect to it, but, Probably the most amazing thing that happened to me on that tour was um it was the it was the US part of the Foo Fighters tour that we were doing. And I remember getting a call from my dad, and he let me know that my brother, who had been feeling sick for a while and just something was off. I have a younger brother, he you know, my his name is Matt, and uh, you know six years younger. He's a great drummer. He's played in some great bands. Uh, he, he played in guns up for a little while and, Oh wow. Uh, yeah. Has had a band called power wolves that I really liked. Um, but in any case, so he was still in high school at this time and, um, something was off for a while and they couldn't figure it out and he just kept getting worse and worse. And so my dad called me while I was on tour with the Foo Fighters to let me know that they figured out what was going on with Matt. And it turned out that he had been diagnosed with Hodgkinson's. And so that was crushing. Um, you know, I'm out on this tour and playing with Foo Fighters and should be having the time of my life. But all of a sudden I'm like, shit, I feel fucking horrible that I can't be home with my family right now. And so, uh, our tour manager at the time, Pete Stahl, a singer of scream and goat snake earthlings, and, uh, you know, obviously an old friend of Dave's, um, you know, we were talking about it and he's like, Hey, I think I could probably get Dave to like jump on the phone with your brother and talk to him for a minute. Maybe that would lift his spirits. And I was like, fuck yeah, that'd be great. And so, you know, Dave went and talked to, I'm sorry, Pete, Pete went and talked to some of Dave's people or Dave and worked out, you know, a time and a place. Um, and then I made sure that my brother was going to be around. I didn't mention anything that was going on. And so, uh, you know, Dave comes over to where we're hanging out and we shoot the shit for a minute, tell him a little bit about Matt, you know, and mention that he's a drummer and, you know, let him know what's going on. And so I call my, my brother, Matt gets on the phone, you know, I'm like, Hey, I got someone here who would love to talk to you if you got a minute. And so I put Matt on the phone with Dave Grohl and they shot the shit for like five minutes and, you know, Dave asked him about uh, his new electronic drum kit that he got from the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And um, wow. super cool, man. Super cool. And uh, my brother was totally shocked. He didn't expect it at all. And, you know, um, when they say that Dave's one of the nicest guys in rock and roll, I fucking back it 100%. And just that five minutes really sealed the deal for me. That's so cool. What a what an amazing story. What an amazing story. Um, 
I've had the I had the pleasure of of meeting him twice in just very different circumstances, but kind of through the same person. But uh, both times he was just like, yeah, like you're saying, just the the kindest, nicest guy. Like he was uh, a buddy of mine had a show on a ra- on uh, the rap station here, Power One Hundred Six. But he would play rock and rap. It was like a late night show on the weekends. And uh, when his show inevitably went off the air after being on the being like a a, a steady show for a long time. Uh, Dave was the final guest on the show and he invited it. We all worked at a record store together. He invited all of us to to go to the record store. I mean, sorry, to go to the last show. And he's like, yo, Dave's going to be here. And all of us were just like, what kind of a thing? And so uh, eventually we go in the booth. He introduces us to Dave. And in my brain, I'm like, I get to shake his hand and then I'm going to leave. I don't want to be, I don't want to disrupt the show. I don't want to, you know, get in the way. I don't want to be annoying or whatever. And um, so like, you know, met him they went to or they went back on the airs during a commercial break when it goes to the next commercial break i was like i'm just gonna go say bye to everybody i'm gonna get out of here you know so i don't even want to bother dave because he's talking to somebody else so i go and i say bye to my friend and then as i'm leaving he stands up and he's like jeremy you're leaving already and like the (laughs) fact that he like remembered my name i was just like are you kidding me man come on like my heart was just like, didn't know what to do. And I just went into a panic. I was like, uh, and I still ended up leaving because I was just in a panic. But the fact that that <laughs> exact as is like the fact that he retained my name, like meant so much to me. I was just like, what a hero. Seriously. Oh, that's that's yeah. super cool. Yeah, I was I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, it's funny. I had heard a folklore thing uh, that he had some sort of like, uh, like, is there any truth to him? Um, being involved in any of the songwriting on Antenna. Is there any truth to that? No, that would be super interesting, though. All right, put that to rest. That was yeah. a folklore thing that I'd been carrying with me, and I was, Sorry, try, I was trying to find the, I was trying to find the right moment to to hit to to hit that. So okay, all right, it's, there it is. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, with uh, so yeah, I mean, I had asked you about um, you know, Kaven uh, sort of you know becoming your own producers and things, or like considering yourself producers and stuff like that. Um, I I do think that it's awesome that uh, you know, going through all those experiences and feeling like you know you you have control of your own sound, and then having the uh, with you know you're talking about uh, sort of choosing what you wanted to play in the Jupiter era, then you have the RCA era and now you're sort of, it's like kind of the mix of the two different sounds, um, going forward. Um, did you, did you feel like at that point, um, you know, you, you had carved out what you guys wanted to do and you weren't going to make like any sort of exceptions for what anyone expected from you going forward? Well, I think we found that being I guess taken back into the world of hardcore and sort of embraced by our old friends and peers. Uh, you know, case in point, like one of the first tours that we did after getting dropped from RCA was uh, we did a converge between the buried and me U.S. tour. We just went out for like six weeks and and hit it. I caught that tour at the Troubadour. I remember that. Oh, yeah. cool! That was a yeah. great tour. Um, yeah, and and it felt like, I mean, we felt really lucky, you know. We felt like we escaped death in a way, because, um, yeah. you know, there had been so many 
horror stories about the way things ended for bands on major labels up to that point. And we were fortunate. We had some things written into our contract that ended up being very beneficial to us, um, especially when it came to getting dropped and getting paid out and being able to retain the masters for the demos that we made for RCA record number two, which ended up becoming perfect pitch black. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, um, we, we just had sort of a new lease on life and I think it helped us rediscover what was special about our band in the first place. And something that was kind of missing for a little while was the, the duality of vocals in the band being such a prominent thing. And I think we rediscovered that right around the Lollapalooza tour when we decided, hey, fuck it, let's play some stuff from Until Your Heart Stops. We haven't done that record in a while. And um, so we just started to integrate some of that material back into our sets. And um, yeah, I think uh, all that kind of came together in a really cool way at a time when it needed to happen. That's awesome. That's yeah. super cool that you could you could go back and sort of like remember what what it was that you loved about being in this band and and all of those sorts of feelings. That makes total sense. For sure. Um, was uh, was this your first time actually uh, recording a record with Kurt as a producer or or engineer? As we were just talking about the the producer situation, but um, yeah, was this your first time working with him as an engineer? Well, so Caven did until your heart stops with Kurt. 1998 and i mean that was over 20 years ago so yeah 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 uh so uh you know between then and now i mean we had done recordings with kurt we did um we did some demos for the jupiter record with kurt oh okay we did demos for the antenna record with kurt and um both recordings were at his norwood massachusetts location and some of that stuff was released, not not in full, but um, yeah, I think it was high time for Caven and Kurt to have a reunion of sorts. And you know, Kurt will he, he doesn't he doesn't let me forget that his input on the antenna songs, um, you know, it, <laughs> it, it's like there's one song in particular. I think it's Stained Silver. There's a drum beat where he's like, you know. The way you had it on the demos was better than the record. I don't know why you changed it. So, <laughs> you know, there, there's little things like that, um, which is it's part of why I love Kurt, you know? Yeah, and, uh, his honesty. His honesty, very honest. And so, uh, actually, I got a funny story about that. I mean, the first time I ever met Kurt, um, or actually had a real conversation with him, um, it was because of this thing called the Want Ad. You ever, you ever hear of that or remember uh, that thing? I don't know. It's a print publication that circulated around here, and it was essentially like classifieds for anything that, you know, it was like, it's kind of like Craigslist in, uh, you know, paper form. So um, they had a whole section of people looking for and selling gear. And I had heard from a friend that Kurt was selling one of his guitar cabs. And he's like, yeah, he's got it listed in the want ad. Um, Just look through the listings and, I don't know, look for someone named Kurt selling a cab. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with a 617 number. Okay. And so I did, and this is before I knew Kurt, you know, yeah. this is like 1996. And so, you know, I find a listing. It says, you know, guitar cab, a hundred dollars, call Kurt, 617 number. 
So I dial him up and we start talking and I'm like, shit, I'm talking to Kurt from Converge. This is cool. You know, I'd love to own his cabinet. Badass, right? And uh, yeah, he mentions the cabinet still available and we start talking a little bit and he realizes that we have mutual friends. He's like, oh, you know, the guys in Piebald. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're, you're from the same town, right? And you know those dudes, right? And he's like, yeah. And so we, you know, we make some connections through that. And when he realizes that <laughs> I'm someone within sort of his friend circle at that point, then he levels with me and he's like, dude, you don't want this cabinet. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll never forget that because, you know, within like the first five minutes or so of talking to him, he was, he was honest with me, you know, he was yeah. like, I'm not going to sell this dude some shitty cabinet. And, um, you know, so fast forward years later and, you know, here we are like yeah. working together on a record and, and his honesty is a huge part of that. That's awesome. It's God, I feel I feel foolish that I forgot that he actually did until your heart stops because I for I for some reason I thought that McTurna did that record, but no, that's right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, All good. And yeah, no. And uh, this is your first time doing a record on Relapse as well, right? Yes, yes. This is our first new record with Relapse. Um, do you think that because of you know sort of the legacy your band has, uh, like they understood what you were trying to do and they you know. Uh, like welcomed you guys uh with whatever you guys wanted to make because they just sort of like trust that you know you're you're gonna do something uh, uh of quality well being that they're a label based in pennsylvania in the philly area i mean that's somewhere that caven hit very hard and frequently back in the days of like until your heart stops um when we were just trying to go out and play as much as we could sometimes with to go as far as we could make it in a, in the span of a weekend, like these little weekend trips and, you know, and so, um, you know, during that time, there were always people from relapse hanging out at the shows that we were playing. And there were, you know, a lot of connections there, like, uh, playing shows with Dillinger escape plan who did records on relapse or, um, you know, doing stuff or being affiliated with coalesce. Um, so, I think the history of those experiences still to this day carries forward. And on top of that, Relapse has done really tremendous things with some of the bands that have like a legacy sort of uh, level of output. I mean, one band that comes to mind is Death. You know, what they've done with all the Death records has been awesome. And it, it's gotten me excited about all those records all over again. And so I was just sort of thinking about it. And I was like, you know, if they can do something to that degree with the Cave and Catalog, then I think we're in good hands. Right. That's awesome. That, yeah. Uh, it, it, feels like, it feels like just like a perfect home for you, especially when you know someone for that, when you know people that long, that long. It's like, you know, it's not like you're, dealing with strangers it's like these people obviously understand they've been around for a long time they've they've seen us throughout the years um that makes sense uh the record is like like i was saying at the beginning of this the record is awesome um it's it's uh i feel like it it's all of the things that everyone has loved about your band throughout all these sort of years um in a very like cohesive package you know what i'm saying that's great Um, man thank you thanks for listening and checking it out and you know going places with it it's cool (laughs) 
Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll hit you with the last question, which was, when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Man, that's a great question. And I know you prepped me to answer this question, you know, <laughs> many minutes ago. <laughs> but uh, I'm still having a, a tough time really pinpointing um, a clear moment where that all coalesced. And um, maybe in a way it's, a testament to, I guess, being fortunate enough to have lots of moments where it felt like that clicked for me, or it continues to click for me. Um, but I will say, and I, I sort of touched upon it earlier, when Caleb joined Caven, the whole vibe changed, and it really felt like, for the first time ever, I was in a band that seemed invincible and it seemed like directionless in the way that like there's there's infinite directions you know um like spinning in the coolest way possible creatively yeah and uh yeah i think that's when things really clicked and you know caleb grew up in new hampshire and uh he was part of a, a hardcore scene up there with his band strike three. And, you know, that's how we met. Like we, we went on tour together. It was, it was Caven's first tour up and down the East coast. And there were 11 people smashed into a 15 passenger van. Oh my God. To do like five shows. Yeah. I mean, we shared gear and we used, uh, I think it was Jay Frechette's old mattress as a loft where in, you know, the loft was just sort of floating on top of, all the gear um, in the back of the van and three people had to be in the loft at all times. It was insane. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had that experience together. Yeah. And uh, that'll bond you for sure. And, you know, Caleb was the vocalist of this band. We didn't even realize that he was a bass player until I guess, um, you know, some months after that tour and we had Travis from Piebald filling in on bass Travis was an incredible player with Caven, and it was fucking great playing with him. But Piebald was his baby, and we just knew that um, we were going to have to find someone who was, a, you know, willing to be a permanent member. Yeah. And uh, and Caleb was like, "Hey, you know, he he was down to try out, and it it was fucking cool. I mean, we had no idea. He was like from the world of." primus you know he was like popping and slapping and playing with his fingers and you know uh it's funny like talking about that first show with you two and primus i mean that that could have been part of our attraction or my attraction anyways like oh this this dude's down with fucking less all right well yeah put a a pick in his hands and let's see what he can do and right um, and he really applied himself to learning cave material and um you know dusting off his bass chops because he I don't think he had played very much uh at that point he was in a he was in bands playing bass prior to strike three um but once he got in I mean he was like you know his, his wife would tell stories of you know him locking himself in his closet with his headphones and just like grinding these demos that we were making over and over again and just trying to lock the arrangements and all the fucking techie shit into his brain and you know just trying to get up to speed and get on and get 
on our level, you know, and, and he did. And it was a fucking valiant effort. And beyond that, he and his then girlfriend at the time, you know, they picked up and they moved out of New Hampshire and they moved down to Boston and, you know, left their comfort zone and integrated into this world of like Boston hardcore and punk, you know, this little scene that we had kind of started and had going in in Boston at the time and very cool and brave of them and, you know, some element of sacrifice in there as well. And yeah, so I guess that's my answer, you know, I guess yeah. when, when Caleb joined Caven, that's when it all really came together. Sure. That makes sense. And, you know, uh, obviously the, the most, you know, deepest, deepest condolences for that whole situation. You know, I feel like everybody was, uh, pr- you know, pretty, pretty rocked by that. I was, I was lucky to get to go to the show at the will turn, um, which was like a really special night. And, uh, a, f- a friend a mutual friend that we have some i don't know if, i don't know if you've seen him in a while but uh dewey who worked at hydrahead yes remember dewey? Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 he's a good friend of ours uh you know nick from my band who i also know that that you know uh who's, who did graphic design stuff for for hydrahead um he once told us the best story about caleb which even if it's a little exaggerated i want it to be i'm gonna let it remain true where i think he was present i think he actually recorded uh caleb um recording vocals for that ocean record i think that's what it was and he said that when caleb would did vocals that he said the room literally shook (laughs) oh man caleb had a loud voice dude yeah yeah i I remember i mean he was someone that um you know i never i never had the pleasure of meeting or anything like that but i was always very intimidated by you know like whenever i'd see you he'd walk by and it'd be like he's fucking ripped (laughs) <laughs> he's 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 got like cool tattoos he's like full sleeve like uh just looks like a fucking man's man you know kind of a thing and uh and uh so i was just always you know like whenever i'd see you guys play with him i just like fuck man that guy is so hard it's so sick um, <laughs> so then so then hearing the dewey story of how is he can make the room shake i was like i believe it i believe it it's scripture yeah you know? yeah i mean he had a a fucking loud voice and <laughs> You know, he would blow it out too, and I I was right there with him. Yeah. Like I don't think either of us really, you know, back in the day, figured out how to like fully harness that thing. But it yeah. also added to the intensity of what we were trying to do, where it was just like fuck technique, fuck the long game. Like I'm just gonna attack this mic, and I'm gonna it's gonna come out sounding exactly how I feel. And yeah, I mean, that's no discredit at all to his style because I, his vocal style certainly evolved as time went on. And I think the more that he did it, the more you can hear the evolution, like the difference between, you know, early cave and stuff. And then you hear how the writing process and the, the whole chemistry of old man gloom sort of inspired him in different ways. And, you know, obviously being in a band with Aaron Turner and Nate Newton who have amazing aggressive vocals in their own right, you know, that's got to click with you in in a way. And, uh, and then really finding a whole new creative level with the Zozoba records. I mean, harmonic tremors is incredible, you know, and you know, it's funny people ask us like about our influences on this new Caven record. And, you know, when we did those tribute shows, you know, the one at the will turn that you went to and, um, the one at uh, 
the venue in Boston. I'm totally blanking on the name right now. Um, but uh, we learned some of that Zozober material, some of it for the first time. Um, and getting to play those songs was great because, you know, you got to kind of move like Caleb a little bit to really get into the spirit of what's happening on the guitar or the bass. And, um, you know, it helped us sort of connect with him even more deeply. And Nate will say that about learning Caven songs, you know, learning the way that Caleb played in Caven and having to learn those lines. It made him feel closer. And, you know, I had the same feeling with Old Man Gloom. I mean, it's a fucking challenge, man. Like getting behind the mic, <laughs> trying to fucking <laughs> pony up and like really nail the spirit of some of the shit that he did in gloom on vocals. I mean, it would destroy me. And I yeah. eventually just had to kind of figure out my own thing because there was no way that I could ever really truly emulate what Caleb did. And I think Nate knows that as well, but you know, I think as a vocalist in that realm of like aggressive vocals, you know, Nate's had a certain thing honed in for a long time. And it actually forced me to rethink my whole approach and my whole technique and whole vibe to doing aggressive vocals, you know, getting thrown into the fire, fucking trying to bark this shit out with conviction and have it sound good and not embarrass myself. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, even, even at this point, you know, Caleb is still teaching us things, you know, yeah. um, we get wrapped up in learning his music and, we want to channel that through heavy pendulum. Like what would Caleb say or how might he write a song or what kind of riff would he write here? Or how might he sort of reflect a riff that I'm working on right now? If I were to show it to him, how might he spit it back at me right. in a way that makes more sense and is more palatable? Um, and then again, trying to wrap my head around his vocals and trying to find my own way to do it. You know, he's still pushing me, you know, even with him not being present on the earthly plane. It's it's pretty amazing. So um, and I hope it stays that way, honestly. Like, yeah. I hope I hope he continues to sort of motivate us in these secret ways that, uh, you know, you just have no way of knowing. It's just life just unfolds. And there it is, you know, something new to kind of ponder or connect with. I do think that you can hear the spirit on the record as an outside person just telling you that I, I definitely think you can I, you know you feel the love there um it's 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 handled with uh with such delicacy and respect it's 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 really really cool and i appreciate you sharing that oh thanks man thank you and thank you for the condolences you know it's uh you know we just try to do right by him and his family and you know i think the whole reason of caven doing its thing at this point it has a new meaning and that's a huge yeah. part of it Totally, totally. All right, man. Well, good talking to you today. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Stephen for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now. You can get a little more Steven where he answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that now. 
And uh, you could submit questions to upcoming guests. Got a lot of good ones on the horizon. Take care of yourself. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.